Alright folks, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. I'd like to pick up where we left off last week. Midway through the chapter of chapter 15, we have been seeing for a couple weeks unfolding the complete implosion of King Saul, Israel's anointed one. I say that he's Israel's anointed one and not the Lord's anointed one because he wasn't, right? He, he was Israel's man. He was, even though he was selected by God, King Saul is not really God's man. Saul is something of a concession that God is making to Israel, giving in, giving them over to their sinful desires and permitting them to endure some of the consequences of their sin. Remember, Israel had rejected the God who thunders in favor of a tall guy who hides in baggage. It's a poor exchange. And it's a reminder to us, even from the very beginning, That whatever substitutes for God we choose, they will always lead to a bitter end. Let that be a reminder to your heart tonight. God in his wisdom permits us to taste the bitterness of our sin in the hopes that we will lose our taste for it. And that we would turn to the one true God who alone can satisfy Well, here's the scene. You may not have been here last week or uh, maybe haven't read it in a week. In chapter 15, we are seeing the word of the Lord come to King Saul through the prophet Samuel. That's how things worked in these days. God would speak through his prophet and he would give his word to the king. And then the king, in theory, obeyed what the Lord said through the prophet Samuel. And so God had spoken through Samuel to Saul to go and completely destroy the Amalekites. We talked about this last week. The command was very specific. Not just the men, not just the army, but every man, woman, boy, and even nursing children and all of the livestock. It's complete annihilation. And as we wrestled through that last week, we, we saw that this is a just command. And the fact that God is actually keeping his promise to Israel. We're reminded that God is sovereign over life, that he is a perfect judge. And he was actually keeping his promise to Israel. The Amalekites were a wicked people who, uh, the text calls them sinners, who some 300 years before had, had taken advantage of Israel in a weak situation and had attacked them. And God had given them mercifully 300 years to repent. But they didn't repent. And so the command comes to destroy them. We're reminded, church, that even though God may seem slow, he's never late. God always keeps his word. You can take it to the bank. Always keeps his word. It is so easy to believe that in here when you're hearing it preached. It's so different in the moment of temptation or in the moment of suffering outside these walls. But let us remember that God always keeps his word. And part of that word is that For those who reject Christ, for those who remain in their sin, they will be destroyed. It's a sobering part of the gospel, but it is part of the gospel nonetheless. And last week we saw uh, saw that King Saul, uh, he's 
He's about as good at following directions as a toddler is, right? He does kind of part of it and then celebrates. Uh, he's very proud, very proud of himself. If you have toddlers, maybe you've, you've seen that. Maybe if you have teenagers, you've seen that, right? Um, Saul obeys the Lord and that he goes up and attacks the Amalekites, but he doesn't completely obey the word of the Lord because he spares King Agog. You remember? along with some of the livestock. I heard one scholar speculate, why, why would Saul spare this wicked king? Why would Saul spare Agog? I heard one, one, one person say that, you know, perhaps Saul saw, saw something of himself in King Agog. Remember, Saul was selected to be a king like the other nations. And here we have a king like the other nations, and maybe Saul saw quite a bit of himself. Maybe he was preserving him because he was so much like himself. Either way, Saul disobeys and he spares Agog and spares the best of the livestock. We saw last week, as we've seen often in the book of Samuel, that partial disobedience is disobedience. Or partial obedience, rather, is disobedience. And so Samuel confronts Saul with one of the great confrontations in the Bible. And he finds that Saul is quite pleased with himself. Saul has just finished building a monument to his obedience. And when Samuel approaches him, King Saul says, Hey, look, other person that obeys, I have obeyed. Give me a, you know, give me a sticker, or sign my bronze statue or something. And Samuel has this great line in chapter 15, verse 14. He says, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Well, Saul goes on to argue with Samuel. Bad idea when you're speaking with a prophet of the Lord. And he comes up with an excuse, which I interpret to be as a lie. We'll talk about that more, I think, a little bit later. And he basically deflects the blame there in verse 15 on to the people, right? The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You see that there in verse 15. So Saul, even though he's been confronted, is continuing to plead and argue his innocence. And then finally, there in verse 22 and verse 23, Samuel lays it down for Saul. Let's read those verses again. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I can imagine Samuel dropping the mic and walking off the stage at this point, right? But the story doesn't end there. So let's read now together the remainder of chapter 15, starting in verse 24. Let's hear the word of the Lord in the book of Samuel. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, Your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we know that your word is valuable. We know that it has power. We know that it can cut through our hearts, pierce the bone and the marrow and the joint, and can just expose us before you. And Lord, we want that. We want that because we know that we're safe in Christ, and we want to be like you. So Father, I pray that tonight you would Cut open our hearts with your word. Pierce us. Teach us to fear sin and teach us to love God. Teach us to be concerned for the souls of others and teach us to cry out to you in our needs. And Father, most of all, magnify your Son, Jesus Christ, in our hearts. So Father, let my words fall to the ground and be forgotten. Just let your word remain. And we'll trust that it will bear fruit as you see fit. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's break the remaining portion of this chapter down into four scenes. That's going to be how we organize this, four movements. The first scene is that of Saul's false repentance. Now this is a theme that flows throughout the rest of the chapter, so it's not one specific verse. Uh, We see it in a variety of ways. But Saul's false repentance. In my view, uh, which I think is the right view, because it's my view, that's how that works, uh, (laughs) though Saul seems to say the right thing, and though he seems in an outward way to repent and do all the right religious stuff, I think that we have an example here of false repentance. This is fake, false, ingenuine repentance. The type of action that we hear the Apostle Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he talks about the difference in godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. This is an example of worldly sorrow. We know that the world can feel sorry about sin, but that doesn't mean that they repent, right? Uh, This is an example of false repentance. We have clues all over the passage, and I think it's worth examining all the ways that Saul goes wrong. And the reason for that is because even though it's tempting to be like, oh, that's Saul, that that idiot, right? We should remember that we are entering in this conversation also as sinners. 
we too sin. And especially when we consider, like we did last week, that obedience that is tainted with partial disobedience is tainted, right? So we are on level ground. How often do we fail to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How often do we fail to act from the right motives and we do the right thing for the wrong reason, seeking to please man instead of God? How often do we steal from God's glory, hoarding it for ourselves, drawing the attention and the praise of others that is only due to the Lord? How much should we tremble knowing that our sin is before a God of wrath, as we saw last week? Who among us will mount up his own works and stand before the Lord with his head high? The Bible teaches that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, let's grieve together that we are natural sinners and though we are made right in Christ, that sin, that old flesh, it clings so close and it still remains. We'll remain until we're called home. Even David, the hero, the coming hero in chapter 16, even David, the man after God's own heart, he sinned famously. But David wasn't rejected, was he? So what's the difference between Saul and David, right? I want to make sure that I'm in David's camp and not in Saul's camp. How can we, like, how can we who are sinners like Saul avoid Saul's tragic end? Well, here we see some characteristics of Saul's repentance. And so let's consider those and work to avoid those in our lifestyle of believe, repent, repeat. Or repent, believe, repeat. You can do it all. The first thing we see Saul doing wrong is that, uh, the first clue is that he's rejected even though he says the right thing, right? It's clear that God is rejecting him. Verse 24 and 25, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now it seems at first glance that Saul's off on a good start, right? He's saying, he's saying all the right things. He's confessing his sin. He is even pleading for forgiveness. He's even pleading for restoration. Now, I'm not really sure if he's asking Samuel or if he's asking God. I'm, I'm frankly not really sure how to interpret that. But um, either way, I mean, that's a good start, right? He's confessing his sin. Does not the Bible teach If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Where is Saul's cleansing? Well, it's clear that neither Samuel nor the Lord accepted Saul's repentance. This is a scary reminder. Again, religion is not about words. Religion is not about behavior. Religion, true religion, begins in the heart, and then flows out in words and behavior. Religion, true religion, is about the heart. God saw straight into King Saul's heart. He was not impressed with the crown on his tall head. He saw straight into his heart and saw that this was not a sincere confession. But even more than that, the attitude of Saul's heart is is revealed to us in a couple of different ways. One thing we see is Saul didn't confess until he got caught. Have you been there? I've been there. 
you caught your children and all of a sudden they are very apologetic, right? It's, it wasn't until after Samuel's confrontation that Saul feigned any guilt. In fact, he was brazenly proud of his actions. But the bleeding of the sheep testified otherwise. I don't know what kind of sound our sins make, but what kind of testimony does the sin of your life speak? The bleeding sheep testified against Saul's sin. And now just because Saul had to be confronted, that doesn't mean that he couldn't confess, right? He, he didn't have any, any sense of guilt, it seems, until he was confronted. But just because someone is confronted in sin doesn't mean that they can't confess, right? Again, David was confessed by, or was uh, confronted by who? The prophet Nathan, right? And, and David is the model for us of repentance. We, we know all throughout the New Testament that confrontation has a very clear, active place in the Christian life. If you are not being confronted in your sin, you don't have people that love you very much or know you very well. And if you're not confronting others in their sin, you don't love them very much or know them very well. Those things come together. David was confronted by the prophet Nathan and then he repented. That is the fruit that we pray for in confrontation. But of course, it is far better to confess as a response of confrontation by the Spirit. That inner confrontation that we have. We also see Saul was full of excuses, right? This was those guys' idea, right? As if he wasn't the king of Israel and as if he didn't command them to go and come as he pleased, right? And then he kind of changed his tune. We actually kept the sheep in order to make sacrifices. The, the language that he uses here, uh, it seems to communicate that the type of sacrifice that he was going to make was the type where you eat, right? We were going to make sacrifices, right? I'm going to sacrifice this rack of ribs on my dinner table tonight, right? That kind of sacrifice. I mean, this is Saul who had just driven his men starving into the wilderness to fight. And now here he is. He, maybe he's trying to make up for that. And he's going to give them this great, this great feast, so he didn't have the courage to speak up to them. Excuses are always a major warning sign for us that true repentance is not taking place. Think about your last apology. Think about even that moment where you are considering an apology or where someone is telling you that you're doing something wrong. Perhaps it's your spouse or perhaps it's a friend who loves you or perhaps it's a confrontation at work, right? How easy is it to make excuses? But this is a great warning sign for us. You see, when we combine excuses with our confession, what we're doing is invalidating our confession, right? We're, ma we're making light of it. We're kind of undoing what we're saying that we're doing. Have you ever done that? This is a lot easier to hear in other people than it is in your own, from your own mouth. Um, but you'll find that, that you do it often. That's a... That's a key. Are you making any excuses? Are, are you clinging to the sin that you are confessing to forsake? Excuses invalidate. This is totally different than King David, whose famous confession in Psalm 51 where he says, Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, You're justified in your response to me. David is agreeing with God. He's not making any excuses, right? He, he's not saying, well, well, she was a part of this too. She shouldn't have been naked on the roof, right? He, he owned his sin. 
As you repent, be on guard against excuses. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're thinking, but sometimes I genuinely need an explanation, right? I need to explain what's going on. I have this sinful tendency to, I will apologize for only what I've done wrong, but I will make sure that I give all sorts of defenses for all the other things that I don't think that I did wrong, right? That is the same posture of pride that is very dangerous. And my advice to me, uh, maybe you're like me, my advice to me, I'll just let you listen in, would be to remain silent in those explanations. Trust the Lord. Guard against excuses. Guard against explanations. Take your sins seriously when you're confessing to your spouse or your children or your friend or your coworker or the classmate that you've wronged. Leave the excuses with the bowing sheep. Let the Lord bring justice. Another thing we see is that Saul's confession is directed only towards Samuel. Okay? Uh, I'm not entirely sure what to make of this, as I said, but it seems like Saul is directing his confession to Samuel, not to God. Samuel's not a Roman Catholic priest who's standing, right? So, so I don't know if he's just trying to deal with the person that caught him or, or, or what, but it, it seems like he's not addressing God. He is at least much more worried about Samuel than he is God. All right, he's worried about the one confronting than he is the God who sees. Again, consider David's confession in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned. Right? He recognized that his sin was against God. Our sin, though it hurts other people, is primarily an offense against God. And we will not have a proper posture of repentance until we realize we are dishonoring God in the way we act. True confession will pay careful attention to, to make restitution for the sin that we've committed. We want to own the ownership out of love. We want to take ownership of the consequences. But we must recognize that all sin is primarily an offense against God. And that is really the fourth part of this, is that Saul was not concerned with God's honor. That's really probably the biggest problem here. He's only concerned, I mean, this is the mark of worldly sorrow. He was only concerned with the consequences. He was only concerned with how his sin affected him, right? If you're only broken by your sin because it's destroying your marriage, if that's the only reason, you're not yet broken by your sin. Until we see that our sin dishonors God, we're not in a position to truly repent. All throughout the text, especially here in verse 30, we see Saul angling with Samuel, right? He's trying to, he's trying to manipulate him and politic with him to do things that restore his honor and his authority among the people, maybe even before God. Come with me so I can go worship, right? Or come, come up with me and stand with me before the people. He's concerned about his authority. He's concerned with his political career. Part of Saul's sin was that he feared man instead of God. And we see that fear of man continue, which is another mark that repentance is not genuine. When we repent of our sin, we turn from our sin. It doesn't mean the problem's solved, right? But it means we are actively posturing ourselves against our sin. And yet here's Saul doing the same thing that got him into the mess, worried about what the people will think. So often this, our fear of man, is what stands between us and God. We are willing to maintain a fractured relationship with the Lord all in order to save face. Have you had 
one of those sins in your life, one that the Spirit is convicting you of, but it just the cost is just too high. You just can't make it right. You're just too afraid, right? What, what, would, what would people think if they knew? What would my wife think if she knew that? I can't tell her that. That would hurt her, right? When we let fear of man keep us from confession, we fracture our, relation, our relationship with the Lord. It is if we are acting as if God doesn't see. So never let the fear of man be more fearful to you than the fear of God. Repentance and confession are primarily Godward. And true repentance is made to the Lord and seeks forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And what we, what we see in the scriptures is that God never rejects, never rejects those who earnestly seek him. Never. But that's not the case with Saul. That brings us to the second scene. I'm calling this creatively God's rejection of Saul. God's rejection of Saul. This is the big event that is happening in this chapter. We've pulled out lots of other things. This is the key. God clearly and decisively rejects Saul's insincere confession there in verse 26. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. We saw back in chapter 13 that, that God's rejection of Saul began with the rejection of Saul's line, Saul's lineage. He said, your son, your household, will, they will not maintain the throne. Jonathan will not be the king. So it begins with the rejection of Saul's line. But then now God is moving to completely reject Saul because of his sin. We can't miss this. Saul is rejected because of his disobedience. I love the grace of God. I love the grace of God. But the grace of God is never intended for us to make light of sin. So hear this, church. We need to hear grace and law together, okay? So pray that we hear that tonight. Saul was rejected because of his sin. Disobedience is always a rejection of God. That's what we're doing when we sin. I reject your law, I reject your lordship, I reject your reign, I reject your wisdom. I know it's best for my family, I'm going to do it my way. It's a rejection of God, right? I know it's best for my pleasure, I know what I need right now. You don't know what kind of day I've had, right? I need this now. Our sin is always a rejection of God. And so God rejects us in our sin. It's a rejection of God as Lord, God rejects Saul because Saul rejects God as Lord. That's the key. And this is exactly what God said he was going to do. Flip, flip over a page or two to chapter 12. You can see this in verse 15, this ominous warning that was given to Saul. For Samuel 12, 15, But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king, right? Seeking, speaking to, to Israel. Saul was called to be a king who feared and obeyed the voice of the Lord. That's, that's what the king was supposed to do. All throughout Israel's history, the role of the king was to hear and obey the voice of the Lord. That's it, right? But that's exactly the opposite of what Saul did. Saul himself, in verse 24, back in 15, chapter 15, verse 24, he confessed himself, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And so tragically, no forgiveness is granted to Saul. And Samuel makes it clear in verse 26, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. 
We see a tragic illustration of this in the text. It's very interesting. Saul is begging Samuel to come up with him, but Samuel refuses and then he changes his mind. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe he just gives in. Either way, he refuses. And as he turns to leave, Saul reaches out and grabs for his robe or his skirt. Right? And, and what happens? It tears. So Samuel seems to seize this event as an object lesson. Right? As any good preacher prophet would do. Makes an illustration out of it. Look, look down at verse 28. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to you, given it to your neighbor, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Okay, so what's going on here is more than what initially meets the eye, as often happens in a book that's written by God, right? In Numbers 15, the Israelites were commanded to wear a tassel on the corner of their garments, right? You remember what the tassel is for? It's to remind them to obey the commandments of the Torah, the, the Old Testament law. It was a reminder. We need such a reminder. And so when Saul reached up, I think that's probably what he tore. He probably reached and grabbed, grabbed that tassel. Furthermore, we could, we're not going to develop this much, but uh, especially in the Old Testament, a cloak represented authority, right? It represented something of authority. And so here we have Saul ripping what symbolizes the law and the authority. He's ripping it in, in two. And so it's an action that represents precisely what Saul has done by his disobedience. When he refused to listen and obey the authoritative voice of the Lord, he effectively tore the kingdom away from himself. And then God vowed to give it to someone else, someone better. Church, we are reminded that God's people obey God's word. That's what we do. That's the mark of the Christian, one of the marks of the Christian. You remember John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Obedience is the mark of the Christian. Again, John 14, 15. If you love me, what will you do, church? You're going to obey. You're going to keep my commands. Let us not, in our celebration of grace... Neglect the fact that God accepts obedience and rejects disobedience. But what else do we make of this rejection? It's important to notice that while Saul is rejected, a promise is given. God does that so often, right? The peak of sinfulness and God is inserting grace into the picture, right? He, he gives a promise. The kingdom will be given to Saul's neighbor. It's not left. It's not abandoned. God did not bail on them. He did not rain down fire. This is not a Sodom and Gomorrah situation. God gives his kingdom to Saul's neighbor, a better Saul, David. And from here on out in the book, the focus is going to shift to David as God's anointed one. And this, I think, helps us untangle the seeming paradox of God repenting that we brought up last week. We see this here in verse 29. Um, the, verse 29 says, Samuel speaking on defense of God, And so also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Right? Now remember, last week, we saw God's expression of regret in verse 11. <laughs> I regret, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. 
And then in verse 29, we read, God does not regret, right? So some people would be like, look, the Bible's not true. Well, if we read with basic intelligence, we can understand that perhaps there's more here than, than what we see, right? We saw last week that God's expression of regret, God's expression of remorse is over the sin. He's regretting the sin that has come out of King Saul. He says that he regrets that he's made Saul king, but we read that as an expression of sorrow. We get that from Genesis 6.6. God is always sorrowful over sin. He's especially sorrowful because sin ransacks his creation. It is working in opposition to his plan. It is, it is counter to his intention and his purpose. But we must remember that God's remorse is not like human remorse. God is not remorseful of sin that he committed. He's remorseful of sin that others have committed. He's remorseful of the presence of that sin. And think about it. This is good. It is a good thing. It is a holy thing that God is sorrowful over sin. If he was flippant, if he did not care, he would not be holy. If he was disconcerned, he would not be holy. Holiness includes a love for good and a hatred for evil. But how do we square verse 29 with what seems to be a direct contradiction of verse 11? Well, I think we have to interpret this in light of David's kingship. Let me explain. This is really fun. So God is regretting and grieving over the sin of man in verse 11. Sin that he permits. Sin that he seems to be involved with without getting his hands dirty. But God does not permit that sin to ruin his promises. That's the point of verse 29. Sin does not ruin God's promises. God has made humanity some extravagant promises that, need, that are going to be fulfilled by the kings of Israel. And here Saul is completely blowing it. We must remember that Saul is the very essence of a worldly king. He is a king like the nations. He was selected under sinful conditions. He was selected from sinful demands. So we must remember Saul is not God's man. His reign originated in sin. But that changes with David. David's reign originates from God. He is opposite of everything that the world thinks would make a good king. His dad forgot about him, right? And he was short, which is important. I didn't mean any, I did not mean anything by that, right? It's, 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 biblically, it's biblically important. It's not fun being tall on a bus. I promise. All right. So, so David's reign is originating out of the sovereign will of God. And Saul's reign originated out of the sinful will of man. So God's commitment to Saul was completely dependent upon Saul's obedience. How did he do? He failed. He failed, right? But God's commitment to David was not dependent on his obedience. You see the change? Right? God's commitment to David is rooted in God's sovereign covenant. We can look ahead and we can see a very clear expression of this. We call this the Davidic covenant. You can just listen as I read. One of the best places to see this is in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 13. And he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God has big plans for the Davidic line of kings. 
And he's making a distinction between these two kings. But there's some similarities, right? David is like Saul in the fact that he will sin. But God doesn't reject him. Because God's commitment to David is unshakable. It is what we call an unconditional commitment. God's commitment to Saul was not unconditional. It was very conditional. If you obey, I will accept you. God's commitment to David was unconditional. I am doing this. This is my plan, says God. And you're a part of this, but I don't need you. That's God's word to David in the covenant. And this church paves the way for God's unconditional acceptance for us in Christ. That's why God doesn't reject his children when they sin. This is what God is highlighting when he says in chapter 15, 29, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. God regrets sin, but God will keep his word. He's not reneging his promise. He's not giving up on his word. He's not changing his mind about the promise that begins, I think, in Genesis 3. Saul doesn't keep his word. Even David doesn't keep his word. But God keeps his word. That is the one we worship. He is the hero. God's faithfulness ultimately does not depend on the faithfulness of man. He's not like a man. We just read that. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He always keeps his word. We're seeing God establish his commitment to the house of David. And even though David is a better Saul, right? Keep that in your mind. David is a better Saul. He's not much better, right? I mean, do you know the story of what happens after David and after Solomon and after all their crazy kids, right? Crazy king kids. It's a, it's a, it's a line of murder and adultery and incest, right? It's crazy. But God doesn't reject his line. I saw evidence of this this morning in my Bible reading. The kings that follow David will be wicked just like Saul. But God doesn't destroy them. Listen, this is what I read in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19. So we're reading about all this crazy sin that's going on in 2 Kings. And it says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, since he promised to give him a lamp unto his sons forever. Another text, Psalm 132.11, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not, will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. He's talking about Jesus, right? He's looking ahead to Jesus. This is a pattern that we see again and again in the scriptures. It's a, it's a biblical motif, if you like fun words, right? The theological movement that's going on here is from Saul to David. It shows us the pattern of replacement. All right, if you want to read your Bible better, pay attention to the pattern of replacement. It's one of the most basic patterns in the Bible. But think about it like this. God gave Israel a king like they asked for. But have you ever wondered, why Saul? Why didn't he just skip Saul and start with David? Why why didn't he do that? Couldn't God have just skipped Saul? Well, you see, Saul was part of God's punishment. It was part of God's judgment. He was giving them what they asked for, and then he sends the deliverer. The deliverer comes after the crisis. And time and time again, we see this. Even before Saul and David, even the deliverers, even though, even though they come on the scene, when they first appear, they're not really the right ones. 
right? Just like Moses, wasn't the right guy. Did some great stuff, not the right guy. Just like Samson, did some great stuff, some really cool stuff, some kind of weird stuff, not the right guy. Just like Gideon, right? Again and again, just like David, they do some good stuff, but they're flawed and they sin. You know what happens to sinners? They die. Big problem, big problem, right? Huge, right? We see it all the time. And so this is building our anticipation as we wait for the deliverer who doesn't blow it. It's building our anticipation for Christ, the one who is better than David. He is better than Adam. Jesus is the prototype of humanity. He is the prototype king. He is the substitute. He is the great replacement. Think about it like this. Saul is just like Adam. God gave him a kingdom, and because of sin, he lost it. So God raised up a better king, a better Adam. He raised up David, and ultimately, he raised up Christ. Praise be to Christ. Let's move to the third scene quickly. And here we see Samuel's zeal for the Lord. Samuel's still a major uh, player in this. Unlike Saul, who is entirely concerned about himself, Samuel's completely concerned with the glory of Israel, the glory of the Lord in verse 29. And church, if we are zealous for the glory of God, that zeal will always make its way into zeal for obedience. Always. Zeal for the glory of God leads to zeal for the law of God. So Samuel completed the work that Saul had left, verse, had left undone. Verse 32, 33. Anybody's life verse? Anybody? No? Samuel hacked Agog into pieces. What a sobering picture. What a sobering reminder to us of what will happen to all who face the judgment of God without Christ. Don't get used to the doctrine of hell. Don't get used to the coming judgment. Don't let your heart grow callous to the eternal nature of hell. Let us imitate Samuel. Not, not in hacking up kings, right? That's not what I'm saying. But to be complete and to be zealous in our obedience to the Lord. One final scene. A fourth scene is the end of the apostate. The end of Saul. Verses 34 and 35 here at the end of the chapter may not seem like a big deal, but they're very, very sad. They're eerily sad if we consider their context and what's going on. Even though Samuel and Saul only live 10 miles away from each other, right? That's the geography that's going on here. The text says that Samuel never again saw King Saul until the day of his death. We should understand this as the active rejection of the Lord. It is the abandonment of the Lord. Saul's kingship will continue, but the Lord's left him. He's abandoned him. Remember, Samuel represents the word of the Lord. He's the mouthpiece of the Lord to Saul. So here, here's Saul without any divine guidance. When he speaks to God, God will not hear him. The word of God has departed from Saul. What a terrifying, terrifying thought. There are many applications here for those who profess to be believers and do not obey. If we continually despise the word that God has given to us, why should we think that he will permit us to maintain it? It raises some important questions and some difficult questions. Here we have a man, Saul, who is selected by God to be king. 
And what's even more complicated is that this man actually has God's spirit, right? If you remember chapter 11, and the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, right? That's what 11.6 says. And here, not, so, so we have God's selected king, we have one who has the spirit of God, and then we have one who is even doing repentant type things, right? And he's rejected and abandoned by God. What do we make of that? Well, Saul, believer, can this happen to us today, right? What, what does this mean? What, what, is this, what does the Bible teach about spiritual apostasy? Is Saul an example of a believer that can lose his salvation? Well, quickly, let me, let me try to answer some of these questions. Saul was not a true believer. There's never any evidence that he truly knows the Lord. Even though he has all these amazing privileges, right? Many of you will cast out demons in my name. Do all these incredible things, but then you'll say, depart from me, I did not know you, right? These incredible things. He was used by the Lord in powerful ways. He never found salvation. And we know that because we never see him sincerely confess his sin. He never humbles himself before the Lord. And he never turns. Saul is a classic example of one of the most terrifying passages in all the Bible. Listen as I read from Hebrews 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. It's like a commentary on Saul's life. Both Hebrews and the person of Saul are an example to us that teach us it is possible to grow so hard to the law of God that repentance becomes impossible. This is not to say that there are some sinners out there who have such an impressive sin resume that God cannot save them or that God is not willing to save them, right? This is not about the size of the sin. This is about the persistence of rebellion. This is saying that there comes a point known only to God, not known to you, not known to me, not known to the church, not known to the Pope, right? Not known to man. There's a point that comes known only by God where man can finally and irrevocably reject God and there's no hope for salvation. That's terrifying. And it begins with disobedience, especially those who have the word of God. This is so, this is so scary to me. I want to affirm two truths as we say this. The scriptures hold out the promise of salvation and the willingness for God to forgive all who come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 16 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. At the same time, it is possible for it to be too late for a person to repent. Now, this is not like a person wants to repent and God says, too late. That's not it. Right? That may happen in hell, but I, I don't think that'll happen in hell. I don't think they'll want to repent in hell. That, that's not what's happening. Sinful man never wants God until, until a miracle. Sinful man never, ever wants God. And at some point, he goes too far from God, and God leaves him. But we cannot know if one has gone too far. And so we must continually and constantly call hearts to repentance and faith and plead with God to soften their hearts. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, remember what Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Assurance and security, assurance and eternal security are privileges only for believers. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. John 6, 39, this is the will of the one who sent me that I should lose nothing at all of what he has given to me but raise it up on the last day. The Bible clearly teaches that those who believe have assurance of salvation. But the Bible also teaches the danger of sin. Sin, when fully grown, leads to hell. It will damn you to hell. And we need to feel the balance of both. So this is why the mark of the believer is repentance and faith. I've said it a hundred times, right? David is a reminder to us. The mark of a believer is not that you don't sin, but that it's you grieve your sin and turn from sin and crying out to God for help. It's a life of continual repentance from all known sin. So let Saul be a warning to us. I conclude with Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers. This is a warning to church folks. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need other people to keep you safe from hell. Be a part of the church. Father, would you help us to understand your word? Help us to tremble at your law. But Father, help us to boldly approach your throne of grace with confidence, with Christ in arm. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.